seat. Yeah, have a seat. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If we've not met yet, look forward to meeting you maybe after the service. Thank you, Chris. Hey, keep your Bibles open in John 8. That's going to be a helpful passage. If you did not grow up in East Tennessee, you might agree with me when I say that Knoxville homes are not like most homes. Um, we did not grow up here as a family, so what, one of the things I noticed when we moved to East Tennessee is it seems like the walls, the halls, and the doorways are just a little bit tighter. Not that the houses are smaller, but everything feels a little bit scrunched in. I, and I'm not an expert. I'm not a contractor, an architect. I'm not near that smart. I wonder if it's because we have multiple floors to our homes, and so we kind of need just more walls, I guess, to hold it all together. All I know is when we first moved here, I bumped into a lot of things, a lot. Always bumping into a door, bumping into a table, trying to get around it. Um, but the worst time, when I really feel like I'm in a dollhouse, is early in the morning. I'm an early riser, right? And so if you're like me and you get up and the house is dark, and maybe the rest of the family is asleep, uh, maybe your roommates are asleep still, and the house is kind of still paused from the day before, you might get ready to the light of your cell phone. Anyone do that before? Kind of go around. Now, not with, the, not with this light on the back, because that joker can land a plane. You know, we all know that if you're, if you're trying to keep everybody safe and sound in their bed, you don't use this. You put it like on your, your email or your inbox, and you use the screen, don't you? you? You dial up the brightness, and you just kind of get ready. And, and you know, you can picture me, I have horrible vision anyway, so I kind of walk around with the Heisman pose to spot me in case this, this thing doesn't work, because this just moderately works, you know? Doesn't work great. So I kind of do this, and I'm still bumping into things. I don't cuss or anything, because I'm a Christian, and Christians don't do that. But every once in a while, I will try to come around a table, and I swear it's shorter than it really is. So I'll clip my hip, you know? Because I can't see all the hard edges and the definition and the details. Everything's kind of amorphous. You see bluntness and just big forms. I end up kicking a, a clothesbin because for the life of me, I don't remember it being there from the day before, and this didn't help me. So it goes down the stairs, makes a lot of racket, and you kind of stop and listen for cries, you know? Or I count steps when I go down my steps. And sometimes I forget that we have 14 steps, not 13. So my last step looks a little magoo because it, kind of, it kind of has me doing a lunge when I don't want to. You see, I see things, but not in great detail because it's really dark. This all reminds me of whenever I became a Christian. Because on that day, for me, that great day, dark places found light for the very, very first time. The lights were turned on. And I could finally see what I was not able to see before. You see, all of my life, up until that morning, I was grasping. I was groping. I was feeling. I was guessing. Not quite sure where to put one foot and where to put the other. But on that day of new beginnings, God entered the picture and threw the lights on. And I could see everything. I felt like I could finally see everything. What was hidden and obscure has now been made clear to me. God had showed me my direction, where I was headed, where I had come from. He showed me the, in high def my guilt, the blood on my hands, what I deserved. He showed me the grace of God. He showed me how sweet God was to me. In the dark, I could only guess what was going on in my life. But when Jesus entered the picture for me, 
He took away all guessing. I became a Jesus lover on that day, and I have not stopped since. In today's passage, the one that Chris just read, Jesus, our hero, is speaking in metaphor. He's speaking in picture. Okay, you pick that up. I am the light of the world, he says. That, that is interesting because sometimes when we read something that feels metaphorical, and we've already hit a few places like that in this book, have we not? I'm bread, I'm doorway, I'm light, I'm water. I'm, we see him kind of personifying things and associating himself with things in a metaphorical way. But let me tell you, this has very real implications for our everyday normal life. It is not a metaphor for you and me today. It is very real, and I think we have a lot to learn from this passage today. And if I could be just blunt with you, I think this passage is going to be difficult for many of us today. I think this sermon's going to be hard for many of us today. See, we need God to change our hearts. Everyone that walked in this room needs a heart change. But we need, we need the Holy Spirit to do the change in our life. The Holy Spirit is the change factor in our life, right? He is the beautiful, the beautiful God who comes in and takes what is sinful and makes it obedient. He is, the Holy Spirit is what takes what is raw and unfinished and makes, makes us look a little bit more like Jesus. And as I was putting this together and as I was just looking at it just a few minutes ago, I really feel like we need to pray, even right now at this moment, just that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts because this is a heavy word, okay? So let me just pray. Just indulge me on that. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your goodness to us as a church, as your people, as your sons and daughters. You have flipped the lights on for many of us in this room, and many of us can remember that day. And Father, I know that there are people in this room that you have not flipped the lights on. And, and, and they are grasping, and they are groping, and they are doing the best they can to place one foot in front of the other. But they're banging into things, they're hurting themselves, and they are grabbing for any kind of glint of light that promises that it could bring some shape to their life. So as we look at this passage, and as we examine you as hero for us, I pray that you would send your spirit to change us, to change our hearts, to show us that we are not where we ought to be, yet we are still deeply loved and shown grace by you, that you are smiling on us as your children today, and you are drawing us from dark places. We love you, Father, and we're very thankful for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. For God's people, despite the fact that God's growing work in our life through the Holy Spirit is a very real thing, and it really happens. We're still a people that are prone to hide. We have hidden things we'd like to stay hidden. We have a secret life we'd like to stay secret. We have things in the dark that we would love to never see the light of day. That's true in our lives. But on top of this, we as Christians are missionaries to the city of Knoxville, to our, our workplaces, to our neighborhoods. We're missionaries, but we happen to be missionaries in a place that itself is steeped in darkness, full of people, full of people who are groping and grasping and looking for anything that promises life, anything that promises guidance. And here we see Jesus doing something very brilliant, and he is nurturing a theme that started long before his day, long before his day um, as man on earth with us. We see the theme of light going back. In fact, 
we see right here, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It actually sounds a lot like what John said several chapters ago or a passage we hit a few months ago in John 1. In him was life, John says, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then how, that, that's how it is with darkness. Darkness is not able to overcome light, right? Light solves darkness. So when you're getting out of your car late at night, and you open up your door and the dome lights come on, it's not that darkness floods into your car. Light goes out. Light is the solution to the problem that darkness brings. And Jesus is showing us that he does the same thing. Jesus is light to us in darkness, and he is the only solution to the problem that you and I have. This has been true since the very beginning because the theme goes back much further than even this. We see in Genesis 1, all the way back to the very second verse in the entire narrative of God, his Bible, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So we see a picture, a very unique picture, too, of creation before light. And, and what are the descriptors we have given to us? We see that it was void, it had no form, and it was dark. But God the Son, Jesus, brings light pierces it all, and God says, it is good, and the edges won't blur. There will be a distinction between light and darkness. But make no mistake, Jesus is complicit in the creation story. We miss this sometimes. We think that God the Father created everything, and then Jesus just kind of shows up a little bit later on. But we see something different described to us in the book of Colossians. If you look in the first chapter of that, and it'll be up on the screen, Paul says he is the image of he being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that word firstborn does not mean that he was the first thing created. Firstborn means rank. Of all things created, he is of the highest rank. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, even light, even light, were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen, Jesus is so smart. He is so brilliant that here he is showing us that not only does he create creation, he recreates creation. Not only does he get glory for creating you, but if you were a Christian, he recreated you, and that too is for God's glory. That too is for God's glory. You know, before Jesus arrives, we have no form. We're just a dark void, begging for light, but finding none until Jesus comes. But up until that point, we're grasping. That's where religion comes from, by the way. Religion, when I say religion, I'm meaning the darker connotation of that word, not what we would describe our life today. So if you are a Christian, I would not describe that, at least in this context, as a religion. What you have is a relationship that God initiates and you enjoy, which is something very beautiful. But religions have been invented by man for sure. Why? Because of the darkness. And they're looking for anything, anything that could promise guidance through the darkness, anything that can tell them how to put one foot in front of the other without banging into things. Like a cell phone light, basically. 
But religion stays dark most of the time because it has no clue on what to do with things like death, sacrifice, grace, love, suffering. You see, religion that man invents does not bring light. What religion does is it helps people adapt to darkness. It helps people cope with the grasping and the groping, but it brings no light at all. And when wandering, when we get ready by the light of our cell phone, we cope. Before Jesus, we adapt to the darkness. We try to maneuver the best we can, lost and void, not sure what's going on, not sure where to put our feet, no definition around us, don't see any of the details of the edges of the things we bump into, formless, void, dark. And then the lights come on. Then the lights come on. Jesus enters the room. And that is a grace to you and me. When I say grace, I mean we don't deserve that. We deserve to stay in our darkness. What we deserve is to be bumping into things forever, to always be grabbing, to always be doing just the best we can, but, but not quite sure where we're supposed to go, not, not sure what's going to happen to us. Grace is him giving us what we do not deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. Jesus comes in. He exposes where all the edges and the details are. Now we can see. We could see the distance between a great sinner and a great God. The distance. We could see the blood on our hands with great detail. We could see the remedy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We could see the great crushing blow that did not land on us because by God's grace and mercy it landed on his precious son. We see because the lights came on. We see the smile of God on us, crippled mankind, an unending love coming upon us, even though we're deeply flawed. Jesus here says something brilliant. Our hero says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's one of the better parts of the gospel, in my opinion. All of this that we've just described was not first and foremost with you in the center but with God's glory. You see, Jesus creates creation for the glory of God. He recreates creation in you and me for the glory of God. You becoming a Christian was to reflect God's glory and his goodness to mankind. Now, I know that there are people in this room, some of us might not feel like everything was so dark and void and desperate as I'm making it sound like. And maybe you cannot recognize the horrible circumstances that you were in or maybe that you are in today. If you sit here today and you struggle with this, for those of you who cannot see yourselves groping and feeling and needy, then the gospel has no value for you. The good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus Christ, that, that good news is only for the needy. That good news is only for those who recognize what it felt like to grope and to grasp and to be uncomfortable with it and to see the panic and then to see the lights come on. That's who the gospel is for. Broken people who have seen the lights come on. And if you sit here today and you have no comprehension of the distance between you and God without Jesus, without Jesus, then you are in the dark. And everything you've done up to this point is just adapting to the dark, coping, maneuvering, our prayer as a church is that for you, even today, the lights come on. That today, the lights come on. 
That's why we came to Planet Church. That's our prayer for Knoxville, that for people, we could be a part of lights coming on as God initiates a relationship that we get to enjoy. And we're going to talk to you a little bit later on if that happens to be you, but for the rest of us who would call ourselves Christians in this place, there is a painful tragedy because still after Jesus has come to flush away our grasping and our groping and our darkness, we show by our lives that we like the darkness a little bit. We enjoy the cover it can bring. In fact, for us, we can find darkness quite useful. It's useful. We see this in John 3.19, how mankind handles darkness. It says this, and this is the judgment. The light, meaning Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, darkness is appealing. Darkness is appealing because it hides our secret sins and our pet projects. It allows us to keep hidden the things that we want to keep hidden. Now this verse, John 3, is speaking specifically to an unbelieving chunk of humanity. But we are all tempted, are we not, are we all tempted to reach up and flip the lights back off? to go back into the darkness so that the things that we keep secret won't be exposed. The things lurking in the corners never see the light of day. It's useful to us. It's useful. And it's just easier that way. You see, when we grow as Christians, it's an activity that I said earlier when we prayed that the Holy Spirit does in us. If you were a Christian... Today, there was an older version of you that had this crusty, sinful flesh. But the Holy Spirit changes us by one degree after another after another to look more like the perfect Son, Jesus. Now, the $10 word for this is sanctification, or you could just say growth. Growth from sinful humanity to the Prince of Peace himself, to look like Jesus, to look more and more like a little Jesus. In fact, you've probably heard the word disciple or discipleship used. Discipleship is the process of growth. A disciple is just one who wants to look like his teacher. It's actually not even a Christian word. It's just a word, right, that Christianity uses, that the Bible utilizes. A disciple is one who strives to look like teacher, which is what we do as we try to look like Christ. This means that there's going to be a back-and-forth tug-of-war in our hearts until Jesus comes back to rescue us, right? We will be drawn to the dark. We will be drawn to reach up and flip the lights off. It will sound something like, no one will know what's in my mind, and no one will know what I'm thinking of because they can't see up here. That little pet project, I could keep it secret. It's not hurting anyone. That offense that I have... That disorder, that addiction, that thing, that lust, that sin, that perm- I could just keep it up here. It's not going to hurt anyone. So we're drawn to the darkness, right? But then we're drawn right back to the light sometimes. Jesus walks in the room. Oh, there's Jesus. Jesus, we love you. You know, and we sing and we clap and we're excited about Jesus. And we go right back to the dark. And then right back to the light. That back and forth tug of war is what growth feels like a lot of times. We see this in Galatians 5. As Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, and to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The spirit is keeping you from doing the things in the flesh that you want to do. Right? 
You, th- you thought that was you. You thought you were studly, and that's why you didn't do that. This is the Holy Spirit working in you, keeping you from doing the things of the flesh, and then a lot of times the flesh will rear its ugly head and keep you from doing the things that you want to do in the Spirit. And they are always at war with each other. Growth. Growth is when we take what is hiding in the dark with the lights off and we bring it out into the light. That's a main way. That's one of the main ways we grow as Christians, taking secret, hidden sins and pet projects and dragging them, kicking and screaming out into the light. Not only that, and hear me carefully, and this is where it gets tough, but also where others can see it. Bring it where others can see it, hey, and get their fingerprints on it a little bit, and speak to it, and handle it, and take your burden and put it on their shoulders, and minister to you, and walk with you, even if it takes a long time to hold you accountable. This is where growth is found, the growth of a Christian. This is how we are discipled to look like Jesus. It requires a sort of death, a surrender and a submission to the Spirit, and a dying to self. And then it's just a cycle. Surrender to the Spirit, die to self. Surrender to the Spirit, die to self. You want to grow tomorrow? You're going to have to die to yourself. That's the price tag. You want to grow? You're going to have to surrender to the Spirit, die to self, repeat. Repeat over and over again. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, God's church, we all are being transformed into the same image. Same image of what? Of who? Jesus. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit working through the body oftentimes in works of service. I think what happens is we think in order to look like Jesus and less like our old sinful flesh, in order for that to happen, we have to learn a lot. We have to start accumulating knowledge, which means books and classes and getting mentored with strategy. We think that that's the way to change. That's, that's the ticket to growth. Now listen, it's actually a little bit more painful for, than that. Growth is not less than learning, but it is so much more, is it not? It is so much more. It's closing the gap between the secret life we live in the dark and the public life we live in the open and the light. It's closing that gap. The distance between is the distance we must grow. It's hard, though, and that's why a lot of people won't do it. That's why you see Christians with great big heads and little chests, little backbones, little hearts. But hey, they got big heads. They got big heads because they're super smart. You know, as we've been putting together these classes that we've been talking about off and on over the last few weeks, which we're excited about. We're excited about a leaders collective here and teaching. We're excited about putting together some pilot classes beforehand, and we're kind of putting some shape to that now. But I know when we sit down and sketch all that out, it's not going to disciple leaders, not alone. Now, it will bring knowledge, which is important because we need knowledge. We need to understand the Bible more. We need to know more. This is true. But it's going to require more than just that. Because you can get 13 ministry degrees and still have the spiritual immaturity of a toddler poop in his pants. If what you have is just a life full of secret sins that you've got kept in the dark and hidden pet projects that you won't let anyone see, but hey, don't worry because you've read 92 books and you went to RTS and you're a big John Piper fan, that's not going to help you grow. No one ever beat an eating disorder with a book. (laughs) No one's ever beat pornography 
with a class. That's just not how growth happens. Now, you might learn a few things. There might be revelation that comes. It might inform you. But growth comes with a bigger price tag than that. It's painful. It's painful. Because that stuff you have hiding in the dark, it's there for a reason, is it not? (laughs) Because you don't want anyone to see it. Not only that, we don't want to own it ourselves. We don't want to see it in great detail. And if it's sitting in the dark, then it can kind of stay amorphous. We don't have to really examine it in the light of day, and the light of Scripture. We don't have to see all the hard reality and the edges to it. It could just kind of be a thing that we struggle with, something we're a victim of. This is why sin, many times, we call issues when they're really sins. Rebellion might just be a momentary challenge. An addiction might be a speed bump. We won't use words like lust or rebellion or adultery. They're just mere issues, potholes we hit. But hiding our sinful flesh means owning its ugly truth. Hiding our sinful flesh means not owning its ugly truth. And the darkness keeps stuff secret. But, but, Jesus our hero brings light and he leads us to stare at our own flaws, take those flaws, bring them into the light where community can be a part of the growth process. This is what confession is, by the way. What I just described in as much of a picture way as I could, is just confession, bringing stuff into the light. Is that not what it is? Hey, I have something to confess to you. It's something that you had hidden that you're informing that person of, or people. We see David handle confession very well in Psalm 32. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, if you're a student of the word, you know that he is speaking about confession to the Lord. He's not really talking about people right here. But that is where most of us stop, right? We have some sort of a pervasive issue that we're struggling with or a sin or an addiction, and we will confess it to the Lord, and we will move right on because we think that's all I have to do is confess it to the Lord. That's it. But Jesus does drive us into each other to carry each other's burdens as Jesus carried our burden. It's a Christ-like thing to do. This is why we see in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How can you bear someone's burden unless you know exactly what's going on in their life? How can they bear your burden? If you've got a mask on and it's just in some dark corner in the closet with clothes piled all on top of it and it doesn't ever see the, the light of day, You can't. James 5, 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As it is working. You see, in confession, if I could just maybe throw a couple rocks at some of the ways that we handle confession, it is not just so you can feel cleaner and more lovable. That's how we treat it sometimes, isn't it? That once we've confessed some sin and pulled something out of the dark and let someone else see it, that the win, the goal, is for us to just have that sigh of relief of, oh, I feel so much better. It's off my plate. I mean, it's off my chest. It's been hidden forever. There, it's out there. Like, that's the win. But that's not the win of confession, is it? It's not. It happens, though. Now, where do you think that relief comes from? What is behind that relief? 
Well, one of the things is the enemy and his activity in your life, the enemy, the, the murderer, the, the hater of your soul, he was kind of kept protected. There was a little bit of a partnership while he was in dark places with you, and you just exposed him. Where your friends, where people around you can point to it and call it what it is. So there's a little bit of a relief of, man, that is off my chest. There's also a relief because authenticity has arrived, and now you are stepping in line with the Spirit. Because when you're in community with each other, authenticity, that, that is how we're supposed to walk. With no masks, open, vulnerable with each other. Relief is good. It's a byproduct. But it's not the win. God's glory is the win. When you confess a sin to somebody else, some dark thing hidden in a dark place, done in a dark time, maybe something you can't beat, and you bring it out, you will feel a relief, but the win is God being glorified. Sin being crushed. The gospel on display. This is the win. It's not even about you. It's not about comfort falling on you. It's about glory landing where it belongs. Here are the big fears, though, the ones we just cannot get around. The number one fear, I think, when it comes to confession around people in community, people that you're doing life with, is this. People will judge me, Luke. They won't see me the same anymore, and I will lose all approval and credibility in that person's eyes. And this is true, by the way. I'm not going to say that's false. That is true. The person that you divulge secret, hidden things to, they will see you as either being very authentic or very flawed. Both are true. Both are true. There is something deeply sad, I think. Sad. Maybe pathetic is a better word. There's something deeply pathetic to me about a group of believers, blood-bought Christians, doing life together for a long season and no one knowing each other. Everyone having these masks on that fit so well. They're just an inch deep with each other. No one knows what's going on. There's something deeply sad to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's how the Pharisees lived. Could you imagine an accountability appointment with a couple Pharisees sitting there, right? Because they wanted to look good on the outside. So, Jack, how's your, how's your lust going? Great, Bob. How's your, uh, you know, lying going? What's well, going great? Well, how's your, how's your eating disorder going? Well, it's going fantastic, Bob. How is your, I mean, could you just see that going back? Everyone's great and everyone's fine, and then they close up camp and go about their day. That's what we do, though, isn't it? At least it's tempting. But listen, you can go on living a life where no one knows your dark corners, and sure, people will think you are flawless just like you want them to think, but you will never taste the freedom and the joy of being authentic and being deeply known. You'll never know it. And you'll never succeed in dragging things out of dark places. You'll never succeed in that kind of growth. That growth has a price tag. It's vulnerability. It's being known deeply. I think one of the symptoms of this may be people's difficulty in connecting to different churches. Now, there are some dry churches. There are some churches where it, it, it does seem like everyone's an inch deep and everyone's got a mask on. That's true, and I'm not going to deny that. But I think that many people are fooled that connection in a church comes by being around those who are like you on the outside. We would call it affinity. I will connect when I'm in a church where everyone looks like me on the outside, they must be my same age. They must have kids that are the same age as my kids. They must make within ten dollars or $20,000 of what I make a year. Their car needs to look kind of like my car looks. They need to be kind of cool because I think I'm kind of cool, right? Isn't that what we do? And we look for people that we can connect with 
by how they look on the outside. True connection, though, comes by being around people who look like you on the inside. But that comes by vulnerability, doesn't it? Can't do that with a mask on. You simply cannot connect with any people anytime with a mask on. And when we trade that authenticity for masks, and we feel like we yet again cannot connect with another people, we pick up, we move on to another church, church number 92, looking for a people that we can connect with. Friends, it's not the church. It's you very possibly. Take the mask off. No one's ever going to know you deeply if you've got it on. If you let them get this far and no farther, you will never connect with anyone. And and then who are you going to drag things out of the darkness and confess things to? Who are you going to do life closely with? They are most likely going to be people that don't look like you on the outside, but they look just like you on the inside. This is why the gospel does such a good job transgenerationally. How a 14-year-old boy and an 84-year-old man could have the same idols in their life. Isn't that interesting? One's lived his whole life and the other's just starting and they've got the same struggles to an extent. It's the inside. Here's the second fear. Luke, I would love to confess these struggles that I have. They're very real, but if I do, I will do damage to things. I will start breaking things. I mean, I could lose my job. I'm definitely going to put a ding in my marriage, my friends. I mean, I'm going to start blowing up things. And and this is what it's like, isn't it? We start thinking, gosh, he's right. I need to start confessing this thing, this thing I've been struggling with. (laughs) But as soon as I do, I'm pulling a pin out of a grenade, and I can't put it back in, and it's going to break something. So what we do is we forecast the carnage that it's going to bring to our life, and we decide we're going to fix it on our own. Because the pain of the carnage is too much. So we do what's called double down syndrome, right? I'm going to double down. I'm going to double down on intentionality. I'm going to read twice as much of the Bible. I'm going to pray twice as much. I'm going to show up to twice as much stuff. I'm going to say twice as much Christian things. I'm going to listen to twice as much Christian radio. I'm going to do twice as much everything. And this is the hope, that if we work really hard, we can unwind that problem before we have to bring it out into the light. We can fix it on our own. No one has to know about it. Just get to working. Double down so we make vows and we make promises that we can fix it. We can be intentional enough. We can, we can fix this. Listen, it's true. There may be problems when you bring some things to light. You might have to pay restitution for a theft that you did. You might have to sit down with your wife and explain something or your husband and explain something that's going to cause some marital difficulty. There might be some things that you confess to that will cost you your job. These are very true. But it's the only way to gain life It's really the only way to see what is broken fixed. You see, the lie is is you think that you are trying to not break something, chances are it's already broken, and it's going to find you out anyway. I mean, if you're struggling with pornography, for instance, you think your marriage isn't broken already. Come on, playa, you know better than that. Your marriage is already suffering, right? You think you're a good employee, just a good employee, even though you've been stealing, you don't think that's broken a little bit? It's going to find you out. Now, I'm not saying confess so that it does not find you out. I'm saying confess. I'm saying confess because God has done something brilliant for mankind, brought light. As they sang earlier, hope of the world steps down into darkness with piercing light that shows light and shines everything on our pet projects and our secret sins, and we are free from being slaves to them. We're free from it. Here's a couple warnings. 
Be careful when you divulge your life and who you do it with. If there is no one that you are able to divulge your life with, if there is no one that you are able to take things out of hidden places and show and make an account and confess openly, it is either, either because you are new to a certain place and you don't know anyone yet, or you're bad with community. I can't think of a third option. You're either brand new and you just don't know anyone, and you're still kind of trying to figure out who those people are, or you're failing in community. You might show up to stuff, doesn't mean you're really in community, if you know what I mean. Find someone that is trustworthy. Find someone that will do the work of service, of keeping you accountable, even if it's a long road. Find someone that can call your bluff, too, by the way. Find someone that will listen to you confess and then ask you, ask you if you're lying. Find someone that you can know over a long amount of time, and it takes time, that can spot your face because you have a bad poker face. They know you so well. These, these are the people. These are the relationships that we do this with. This is going to require time. And no, they're not going to be exactly like you. They may be exactly what you need, however. After all, you look nothing like Jesus, and he came for you and is wanting to be in relationship with you. We are okay. We are free to be in relationship with people that don't look like us. So what I try to do with most every sermon I preach is drive it towards a missional application to the city. This one's super easy. It does it for us. We live as people of light in a city of darkness. We all know this, right? And we're growing by the power of God's Spirit in us. And when we do that, the world sees something. When the world sees your growth, it is for his glory before the eyes of all of those who see. People see God's glory reflected in you and me. I love Matthew 5.14 for this passage. It's a great partner passage because what we just read in John is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Here it is, Matthew 5.14. Who is the light of the world? You are the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is leading us, obviously, to live like him. And it shows the entire world who is watching what do people look like when they live in the freedom of an authentic communal life, where our flaws are open and owned and grace transfers back and forth. And that gives God glory. And it's attractive for people to see. Now, last week I made the statement that Pharisees are easily manufactured. Pharisees are cheaply made. And, and, I, and I believe this. I mean, and we looked at the passage where Jesus said, you clowns, you go all over the world, you go all across the sea looking for one convert, and when you find them, you make them twice as bad as you. And that's true. That's true. But I have a warning for me in this as well. Because I don't want to disciple other people to think that it is okay to keep things secret. Okay to th just to keep things in the dark. If you were discipling and working actively, influencing somebody to look more like Jesus, do they hear you confessing sin? Do they hear you struggling? Because how else are they going to learn how to do that, by the way? Because if they look at you growing, acting like you don't have anything secret, acting like you don't have anything chewing you up from the inside out, that's how they're going to think they need to grow as well.
that's what it means to look like Jesus? Like I keep it all inside? I mean, that's what he's doing. That's what she's doing. Could we not, with how we're handling our sin in our secret places, be building Pharisees on accident instead of gospel-fluent, gospel-centered disciples who are vulnerable, open about their flaws, own their flaws, but receive God's grace? That's a warning for me. That's a warning for all of us. And by what power is this supposed to happen? The power of the Holy Spirit, which we're about to ask for help here in just a second. Because we are the light of the world, and because our hero was vulnerable and he was displayed before all mankind for the sins that you and I committed, now we as his disciples are free to live openly and vulnerably. Go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to pray. And here in just a moment, we're going to take communion Communion is a great time to do what David was doing and confess your sins openly before the Lord. But it's also a good time if you have an offense with somebody in here, you have a struggle with somebody, this is a fantastic time to pull them aside and take communion with them to confess your sin. To confess your sin to them. Now listen, if you're here and you're a visitor, a guest, communion is something we do as a church. It's emblematic of both what Jesus has done, breaking himself on the cross to atone us, to bring us close to God, and it's also pointing forward to a better banqueting table where one day we will sit down with no sin, with perfect light around us. It's both. But if you're a guest here and you do not love Jesus, then we would just invite you to take Jesus instead of some bread and some grape juice. Because here you are groping, and here you are grasping, and yet you find yourself here today, hearing the gospel very clearly with an opportunity to respond, with an opportunity to respond. So as you hear God and as you feel God grabbing and pulling and starting to poke on some of those dark corners, as light starts to flood and you can see the, the, the hard edges and the details, you should respond. Because when Jesus enters and turns the lights on, you see everything. All you can do is just say, yes, Lord, look at what I have done and look at what you have done. I pray that this happens for many of you today. And we'll be available up here at the front if you need to talk to someone about it. I'm going to read this passage over you and then I'm going to pray. This is in Revelation 21. It's a great passage to go out on. It's the 23rd verse. John, the same author, says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Father, the reason I know this sermon is hard for people in this room is because it's hard for me. It requires an audit, only, only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us what we've been nurturing and keeping in the dark. It requires an honesty about where we have been overlooking things that we should be staring straight at. It requires a courage to bring things into the open, not so that we just feel better, but for your glory. It requires an audit, a self-examination, a bringing into the light. Father, I think in my lifetime, the most courageous people I've ever seen have been the ones who have been good at confession because there just seems to be so much on the line. 
And yet they are so satisfied with your glory that they don't need to hog and to build their own glory. Let that be true of our lives today. That we are so intoxicated and fascinated with your glory displayed in creation, displayed in a cross, and displayed from an empty tomb. That we are so fixated on that, Lord, that we don't need to protect our own glory. Our eyes are fixed on you. So today, as we just consider the things we've been hiding, today as we consider those dark secret projects, I pray that you would quicken our hearts to confess openly, regardless of the consequence. And Lord, as we go out into a, a city like Knoxville that won't understand that, so many people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there that would disagree with what I'm saying and saying, keep those secret things secret. Hey, no one needs to know about that. You have full right to keep that in your head and keep that in your heart. That they would see we are not doing it for any other reason besides to glorify you. And yet we get relief from it. And yet authenticity comes and we can build together closely like you have designed the church to work. You are so sweet and you are so kind you are so gentle with us in times like this. You are so benevolent. You are so thoughtful for us. You truly are a great hero. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.